Thank you, Valerie, very much. My name is Dee. Um, as was mentioned before, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, not only a privilege to lead you in prayer a few minutes ago, but to uh, take you into God's Word. But before we jump into this passage, or these two passages, Matthew and Genesis, we're in the midst of an 11-week series where we're looking at how Old Testament and New Testament come together in the first book of each testament, Genesis and Matthew. So the readings today come from both books. Before we jump into that, I just want to make mention, um, I am assuming I came a few minutes late from the other service, that this did not get mentioned. If it did, I'm sorry for the repeat. Uh, but um, Friday evening, Frank Carver, uh, he and his wife have been part of our congregation um, for quite a few years. He passed away. Um, he has been fighting for quite some time, uh, significant um, toll taken on his body, because of some falls he's had, uh, some problems with heart, uh, valves that weren't working um, as they should. He was released from the hospital about a week ago and was home for several days under hospice care and passed away Friday evening. Frank um, used to be a professor on campus, um, taught in the religion department, an incredible um, teacher of mine. I never had him in a class, but I was a student of his life. Um, he is um, and still has left behind him an amazing influence and legacy. Um, Betty, who's actually a few years older than he is, uh, survives him and lives up close to their son um, up in the Saddleback area. They moved up there within the year because his health was failing so significantly. And then their two children, Mark, who's an associate pastor at the Saddleback Church, and their daughter, Carol, who lives over in Ohio, are the surviving family members, along with some uh, certainly grandchildren. Um, but I hope that you will lift them up in prayer. I had the privilege of talking with Betty yesterday to um, just hear a little bit of the story of the last few weeks, as well as wanting to give her a chance to talk about what was coming as we go forward. And just so you know, they're planning a memorial service right here, uh, August 5th, Saturday, August 5th at 1 o'clock. And everyone is welcome. We would love to have you here if you would like to come and join in that time. Betty told me that uh, um, some of the pieces of this last week, and then she started talking about the amazing sense of support that has happened since Friday night. Their son Mark posted on his Facebook page and apparently a number of their friends followed Betty and Frank through that. And so she told me that they have gotten people who have called up and told wonderful stories and offered their sympathy from Mexico to Canada, from the east coast of the United States to Russia and other places where they've lived and taught and been. And then she paused for a second and she said, so please don't tell Trump that we're communicating with Russia. <laughs> and I knew Betty was still in a wonderful place to uh, hold both the grief and the joy, the pain of the loss and the hope that she has um, in Christ. It was a very beautiful moment just to hear that mixture. So I encourage you to pray for the family. 
and uh, certainly wanted you to know that. Some of you may have already. Um, it leads to an interesting uh, question about um, a season that we're in. Melissa mentioned that we're in ordinary time. That's in the Christian calendar. Um, I don't know how many here would know the three-week season we are in in regard to the Jewish tradition. I know that we have a few members of our congregation who come out of a Jewish background, and those individuals might know this, but we are in a three-week span that started this last Monday, um, which is the 17th of Tammuz, that's the Jewish calendar, and it extends until the 9th of Oz. This three-week span is a span of mourning, not M-O-R-N-I-N-G, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, a time of grief and reflection. It marks probably the deepest time of grief through their entire calendar. And I'm, I'm not sure what to compare to in our calendar and the dates that we mark. So many of our Christian calendar, calendar dates are dates of celebration. Um, Christmas is Christian calendar, day of celebration. Easter is. But there are others that speak of grief or mourning. Um, certainly Good Friday uh, when we recognize the crucifixion of our Lord or what starts the Lenten season. Ash Wednesday has a little bit of a feel to that. Probably as well, All Saints' Day speaks about those who have gone before us and passed away. This, though, has very particular historical significance in their calendar. The first day, the one that I referenced, that is the 17th of Tammuz, which began this last Monday, marks the day when the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem. Kind of marked the culmination of the end of their resistance in 69 CE. And they consider that a time to mourn and grieve. It concludes three weeks later on a date that has been significant for multiple reasons, but the two most significant being that that is the same date that their two temples were burned down. Separated by so many years, but on that same day it took place. And a deep sense of grief and mourning over the loss of their place of worship. And part of this three-week span is to recognize that exile in some ways still continues. And so they follow certain practices, certain things that they refrain from doing. There are certainly some fasting that takes place on the beginning day and the ending day. But they also refrain some, from many other things. They will refrain during a portion of this period from wearing any type of laundered clothing. They will refrain from cutting their hair. They will refrain from listening to music. There is a span of time where they will only sit on the floor or low stools in a sense of desiring God to bring them up out of that grief and mourning. It's interesting to think about 
what gets marked by a group of people or individuals. It makes me ask the question of myself, is there anything I do that marks significant times, dates, either in my own spiritual journey or in the faith tradition of which I'm a part? And I mentioned a few of the holidays that we do, but I I have to confess, I, I don't always spend an extended period of time reflecting on the significance of those moments. The significance in terms of where it brings me to where I am right now. And how do I go about doing that? Do I do it in the context of the community of faith, this group, or do I do it in the context of my home? The title of this message is Extravagant Parenting. I want to qualify right up front that... um, This is not an entire sermon that's dedicated to telling parents how to parent. It is not that small of an audience at all. In fact, I think that there is only one portion of this that really focuses in on parenting pieces. But my hope is, as we look at the two passages of Scripture, you will find some things here that relate to you wherever you are in life's journey. For certainly within this group, we have so many who... um, are not married, so many who are married without children, so many who are in marriages where um, you've already gone through that stage of life where kids are in the house and you're in that stage where your kids are getting close to retirement. And uh, all kinds of families in between, blended families, people who are living in settings with people who aren't related to them but create a home unit. Please listen to these passages and see if there's anything here that might be good takeaways for you. So we're looking at these two passages in Genesis and Matthew. You heard the story in Genesis, which is the story of Jacob and Esau. These are the twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. Last week we talked about Isaac and Rebekah and how this marriage came about. But subsequent to marriage, quite a few years passed and no children. The son of promise, Isaac, has no children, and he's getting up in years. He prays on his behalf of his wife. His wife inquires of the Lord. In his 60th year, we don't exactly know how old she is, probably much younger, but in his 60th year, she becomes pregnant with twins. Eventually, they'll be named Jacob and Esau once they're born, but they begin wrestling even in the womb. She asked the question, what in the world's going on? This is nuts. I feel them wrestling inside of me. There was a competitiveness that began long before they were born. Seems like it was bred into their DNA. Esau is the first one to be born, but Jacob is bound and determined not to be outdone and grabs a hold of his ankle and holds on. Almost as if he's wanting to get across the finish line the same time as his older brother Esau gets across the finish line. They couldn't be more unalike. It didn't come out quite right. They couldn't be more dissimilar. Esau comes out, this redhead fiery from the beginning, and covered with hair. Esau, not a redhead. Every bit as competitive, every bit as... um, 
attentive to things, in fact, maybe even more so than Esau in terms of his ability to manipulate situations. As they grow up, those differences get even wider. Esau becomes one who loves the outdoors, loves to hunt, loves to be um, away from the village and out doing adventurous kinds of things. Jacob loves the neighborhood. He loves to hang out among the tents. He, He loves to be near where all the people are. Esau can go for quite some time out there probably on his own. Jacob loves some of the social interaction. Esau, probably a little more loud in his presentation, we know from Scripture that Jacob is far more quiet in the way he presents himself. Jacob loves, Esau loves to catch the wild animals. Jacob loves to cook the wild animals. They have their own passions, the different ways of living out life. Here's the awkwardness of this family. Scripture tells us that Rebecca, oh, she loves Jacob. And Isaac, oh, he loves Esau. We really need a good marriage family therapist to come in and help with this family Because there are really difficult implications as we see this story unfold and we may get into it in future weeks. This family struggles with the problems they are facing. This kind of division that happens. The affinity to one child over the other child. The tension and manipulation and issues that grow out of the dynamics of this family unit. And they are not that far different than our family units. Looks a lot like us. I mean, we may not have the same family makeup, whether it's the home you grew up in or the home you currently have. It may not be two twin boys but I can see pieces of this storyline in my journey. And I wouldn't be real happy if there was a Genesis 53 that was the story of the Kelly family that you all could look into and read about this Sunday morning. But one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that we do get a window into the journey of others. And we find there our story or something much like our story. And there we get to let God's Spirit work and transform us. So how do we wrestle with this family unit that is wrought with problems? Well, I'd like to just suggest this morning, since we're attempting to do this, we let the New Testament reading speak into the Old Testament reading. How might that work? Well, this is the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower who goes out and begins to throw seed into the field. And you can find this story where we read it from. Valerie read it from Matthew chapter 13, but you can also find the story in Mark chapter 4 or Luke chapter 8, they all tell the same story. Slight nuances that might help us to gather more information or apply it in different ways, but it's told in all three of those Gospels. It's a pretty significant story, and it comes after Jesus has left the place where he is staying and goes and sits by the lake. Wow, that sounds nice. 
Somehow they found out where he was and the crowd started gathering around him and pressing in and he started to teach them. And he started teaching them with stories and parables. And this is the story that was told. You probably, for those of you who have been around for a while, know that this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I find it difficult. It comes up every three years in the readings. And I find it difficult to not migrate right back to it and talk about it again because it's played such an important role in my journey. So here we are again. And I know we started with Genesis, but bear with me as I touch base on this parable again. You heard the story read. It was the story of the sower who goes out, spreads seed, some of it falls on the pathway, and the birds come and take the seed away. Some other seed falls along the stones, the rocky soil, and there it springs forth real quickly, but when the sun comes up, because it has no roots, it withers and dies, and then there's some seed that goes onto the weed-filled soil, and it springs forth, but a whole bunch of weeds and thorns grow up with it as well, and it kind of chokes it out. So it dies as well. But then some seed lands on the good soil and produces a crop of 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, more folds than you could ever want or need or imagine. That's what happens on good soil. And the disciples are a little confused and say, why do you keep speaking in parables? And Jesus quotes from the Old Testament. This is because the people, they have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, they don't understand, they have a heart that's been hardened. But you, you, you need to have ears that hear, eyes that see, so that you might understand and take this in. And so then he gives the explanation. Many of you know the explanation, but it's really important to know the explanation to get to the other side of this. The explanation is that the seed is the word of the kingdom of God. It's the good news. It's the kingdom word. It lands on pathway soil, and since it's so hard, this represents those who don't understand the good news. So Satan comes and plucks the seed away. The rocky soil... Those are people who hear the word of the kingdom and receive it with such enthusiasm and excitement, but as soon as a little persecution comes along, as soon as there's some resistance, as soon as somebody says, what are you talking about? It's really hard to stand up to that resistance, to feel ostracized, pushed away, and so they kind of give up on what it was that they thought they were all enthusiastic about. And nothing gets produced. The seed that lands in the weeds are those people who receive the good news but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out what otherwise would have happened and nothing gets produced. But the seed that lands on the good soil are those who understand and receive it. And what happens is really beyond what we could have ever expected. So I really believe that Jesus, in talking to the disciples, is preparing them because he's sending them out. They're going out to share the good news for them to not be anxious about the audience that hears their message. Don't get discouraged if you face places of 
persecution or people who don't receive the word or who are enthusiastic right away but then seem to turn their back on what it is that you've taught. This is a description of all the different types of soils into which I'm sending you. To keep them encouraged and keep their faith focused on God and their eyes fixed on Jesus. I think that's true of this passage. I don't think that's all there is here, but I think that's true. I also think that it's for the disciples themselves. An admonition from Jesus to say, others, they have ears that don't hear, but you, I want you to understand. These soils are you. You have in your life places where you get distracted by the cares and the deceitfulness of wealth and it chokes out some of the good things in your life. You have places in your journey where you get so enthusiastic but there's no depth to your journey in those areas. And it's so easy for just a little resistance, a little pushback to make you just wilt under somebody else's comments of approval or disapproval. And, and then some of you really have some bad blind spots. It's a pathway soil. You don't even know how hard the soil is because it's one of your blind spots. It's there. You need to pray that God will help the soil turn over and those blind spots get exposed as difficult as that is. But also know, you are my followers and you have good soil. You're taking it in, you're grasping it, you're holding on to it. And that's a wonderful thing. This morning, though, I want to take this to one more place. I want to take this to a place about our homes. What it looks like to live out the kingdom wherever it is that we call our place of dwelling. There's an interesting word here that Matthew uses more than any of the other gospel writers for this story. And it's the word that is translated understanding. Sunni ami. This word says, is a description of things that finally come together. My paraphrase is, it finally makes sense. It's not strictly about a logical way of thinking, but it's as if knowledge, which is often inadequate, all of a sudden sinks in to the heart. And then I sometimes use the words, oh, now I get it. And it's not so much that you just got given a bunch of additional knowledge that somehow made it make sense. It's very often that you saw it play itself out. Understanding. So Matthew is saying, you have ears that hear things, but you don't understand. You take in the knowledge, but it's, there's no ah kind of moment. Understanding is a sense about something or a sense of place. In my office, I've got three containers of so many blueprints of the properties of the church I don't, I don't know what to do with all of them. Pages, hundreds of pages of blueprints of all of these buildings. Some of them 30-some years old, some of them 15 years old. And I, I can lay them out on the big counter and flip page after page, and you can see 
where all the doors in every building are supposed to be. You can see layout of the plumbing and where wiring goes and connecting points and sewer lines and all kinds of things. I look at them, I don't fully understand everything, but we are right now last week, this week, and uh, we'll be completed probably in about 10 more days, putting solar panels up on the roof of this building, I don't know, 50, 60 of them. And uh, before this ever happened, the contractor said, I need to see the blueprints of the building. And so I'm standing right beside him as he's turning these pages and looking at all the things, and he's pointing out stuff, and I'm going, wow, yeah, yep, there's the line. I, 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 don't, I don't even know what he's looking for. But I'm convinced that when he looks at those blueprints, he's seen important things, but that is never how I would describe this place. The church is not these four walls. The church is so much bigger than this. But these four walls have significance in that we gather together to worship in this place. We gather together out in this courtyard to have fellowship and eat together. We send people. We receive people. We dedicate babies. We have weddings. We lift up our voices. If I'm talking with somebody and they ask about this place where I attend church, I have never made reference to the pipelines that run underneath or the wiring that goes through the walls. I have never made reference to the number of exits and entrances that you can find on these blueprints. I reference you. I tell them about the spirit of this place. I talk about what it feels like to be here. And it's impossible to get that from a blueprint. There's a lot of information on the blueprint. There just is an understanding of what it means to be here. My daughter and her brand new husband are on their journey from the East Coast where they went and got a rental truck to move his stuff and pick up some things on the way that she left in Oklahoma where she was in school and they're driving cross country. Hopefully the marriage will survive that. <laughs> Yesterday they arrived in Michigan at a place I've referred to on numerous occasions, Indian Lake, Michigan. It's a place that my grandparents owned, a little cabin on a lake. My parents didn't do much to it. They owned it when I was a kid growing up. My uh, sister bought it from my parents, and she hasn't done much to it. It looks about the same, this little cabin on a lake in Michigan. And my daughter wanted to show her new husband this place because of its significance in her journey. We'd take our kids up there every once in a while when they were growing up. She arrived yesterday, called me up and let me know. She did a little FaceTime, let me see, because I haven't been there in years. And um, I asked, I said, how does it feel to be there? She said, oh, Dad, it's so great. It is so wonderful. They're there by themselves, so they just, uh, my sister let them have the place for, for three days. And I, I, my wife called from the other room. She said, does it smell like musty books? And she yelled back, yes, it's so wonderful. It smells like musty books. She asked me a question, and 
let me say again, I haven't been there in years. But I said, well, I'll tell you what you do. Go to the closet that's underneath the stairwell, step inside, turn on the light switch that's to the right, and look to your left, and I think you'll find what you're looking for. And she did. I, I can tell you which knobs on the window air conditioner don't work. She was looking for something, and she said, but I can't get in the padlock that's on the boathouse that's out front. I said, well, it's a little tricky. Here's what you do with the padlock that's on the front. And I gave her a little instruction, and she went out. She immediately texted back. It worked. I haven't been there in years, but there's something about having been there and absorbed the place that not only do I know about the place, but I feel like it's a part of me. There's an understanding of this place that blueprints will never show, that mere descriptions of how to get there on Google Maps won't show, but being there touches something inside of me that has to do with an understanding of a place. This passage in Matthew, if I'm going to apply this to my home, I need to ask myself, what's the word of the kingdom? The seeds that get planted. Well, the word of the kingdom is God's love toward us. Extravagant love. Really extravagant love. I know that we try over and over again to earn God's love. We do that as if we can never fully understand or comprehend that God could love us so much and that everything that we do will never measure up, but God loves us so much that God allowed the crucifixion to happen on our behalf that we might be recipients of God's full love and grace, that we might be set apart for holy use. We don't deserve to be set apart for holy use. There's nothing within us that makes sense that we're set apart for holy use, but that's God's incredible, extravagant love. That's the word of the kingdom. So what would it look like if I tried to make that the word of my house. Because the message out of this passage certainly is about all of the explanations that happened, but it's also a message about the sower of the seed, which is ridiculous. The, the image from that age is to have a, a, a shoulder satchel with seed in here where the where the person is sowing the seed into the field, but you need to hear me loud and clear here that the seed is precious. The seed is what ensures a future. The seed is the potential crop. The seed is my hope to be able to take care of the days that are to come. So tossing out this precious, invaluable seed it needs to go in the kind of soil that's going to produce something. Sometimes it would be this tossing, some types of seeds so precious that they would be brought out one by one and placed strategically in the soil in places where they had the best chance of producing this crop. And yet the sower in this story, it appears all willy-nilly, is throwing seed every which way, doesn't care, it doesn't seem if it lands on good soil because it's going on the path, it's going in the rocks, it's going in the weeds. 
This is chaotic. This is a mess. This actually is neither of those. This is extravagant love. This is our Creator who takes the very most precious thing, the Word of the Kingdom, and puts it in all of those places. How much more in my home should I be extravagant? Letting love fall in all the places that I can find to let that seed go. It's not always easy. It fights against kind of the very nature of who we are. The, the competitive values that we have, like Jacob and Esau, the manipulative nature or thinking that I have to do something to make things work in my home the way they're supposed to work, or at least I'm told they're supposed to work. But I think that this passage actually talks about all of us in our development. I mean, the Scripture says that pathway soil, those who have no understanding... So, just for a moment, I do want to talk to parents. No matter the age of your children, newborn, their retirement, this for a few moments is to parents. I hope others benefit from this, but this is to you. If you've gone through all of these stages, and I contend we have, why would we not expect our children to do the same multiple times in their journey? A stage of the journey where we have no understanding. The soil is hard rock. It's not rocky soil, it's just hard. Nothing seems to penetrate. Children often exhibit that, where it feels like the seed is doing nothing because it's landed on such hard soil. Well, of course, because knowledge is not all that's needed. Understanding is what helps till the soil. Understanding comes from observation, living in the midst of it, watching how parents or parental figures handle life, that leads to understanding, but initially there's no understanding. And it seems like all of that good seed just gets plucked away. But the faithful sower just keeps doing it. Then comes that stage where there's weedy soil or rocky soil, the rocky soil is that where the first little light of understanding happens. And children very often take something in with great enthusiasm because it finally starts to make sense. And they really want to make their parents or a parental model proud. And so they embrace it and grab hold of it. But as soon as they get resistance or pushed back or mocked or ridiculed or belittled or minimized. It's really easy to shrivel up and let go of whatever it was that they had grabbed hold of. As they get a bit older, all of us, I think, have gone through this stage multiple times where the cares, the things I have to be responsible for, the cares of this world, the attraction of possessions or things, the way I, I want to have things, 
that they begin to choke out the good seed that's been planted in my life. I get so distracted, I look in different directions. But then there is an understanding that goes so deep and roots that go down so far. And in those moments, a crop, fruit, a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold gets produced. I've got to tell you, I do not know how to be a great parent. I don't know how to be a great husband. I don't know how to be a great pastor. I don't know how to be a great friend. But when I read this passage, I am convinced that if I will lead with extravagant love, all of my efforts and stumbling and trying will somehow make a difference. Because if extravagant love is that with which I lead, something happens about the place. Something happens about a feel of a home or a relationship. And if the boundaries that are sometimes necessary to be set, if they arise out of this extravagant love, then boundaries serve this purpose of leading to great understanding, greater sense of place. It is into this hopefulness that I think this storyline calls us. It is like the Jewish people marking a time in the calendar to create a sense of story. A rhythm in a year that tells our journey. What is the journey that we tell in our homes? It's got to be a story of extravagant love that resulted in the gift given to us on the cross. The hope of the resurrection. A journey that teaches not just ourselves, but all who walk into our homes what extravagant love depicts. I pray I'm a better husband, a better father, a better friend, a better pastor. And I think knowledge can help with that. But I also think I fall far short if I stop there. I had an interesting debate two weeks ago with a gentleman who just was so desperately wanting to convince me of something specifically in my faith journey. And I told him, I said, I... I just want you to know that I'm not saying that what you're conveying is wrong. I'm just saying I'm not convinced of what you're saying yet. And he just wasn't satisfied with that. But how can you not be convinced? Let me go over my arguments again. Okay, have at it. And he went down the pathway another time and I... I didn't in this moment because I was, didn't feel like the time was right. But there was this sense inside of me that wondered, 
I'm just curious today, have you been loved by God? Have you been in relationship with Jesus to know what it feels like to have that sense of extravagance poured over you where certainty in some things is no longer of paramount importance, but extravagant love covers all of those things. So even though you don't convince me right now, that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is we're bathed in God's incredible extravagance. I didn't say it in that moment, but I I felt like he was walking away with this sense of struggle and angst and stress, and I just wanted to say, but I still care for you deeply. You're a great friend, and I don't need you to be convinced by me. (laughs) That's what I think is the calling on our homes, is to be people in the midst of all of the soils that make up every one of our homes. To be those who live extravagantly into those places. Because there's no blueprint on any page that's going to describe what really needs to be found in our homes. And that's that somewhere you can point and say, here, I found and experienced Extravagant love. Sometimes it smells like musty old books. Sometimes it's a pretty jumbled up boathouse. Sometimes there's dust on the top of the fridge. Sometimes we find ourselves at the end of a dinner clashed and trying to figure out what the next phrase is that won't get somebody upset at somebody else. Oh God, help us to be those who practice extravagance as long and as often as God gives us the ability to do so. Father in heaven, we can describe our homes much like blueprints the way things open, the way things close, where the plumbing is, how people are wired. And Lord, it's not always easy to make a home out of a house. Sometimes those difficulties span days and weeks. Sometimes they span years and decades. Would you, Lord, please in our lives begin to expose the blind spots of pathway soil, the rough places of thorny soil, the places of great enthusiasm and discouragement of the rocky soil. What an interesting mixture we have, Lord. But just like Isaac and Rebecca, we need your help to move past the the tendency to manipulate or control the the ways in which we scheme, but instead, Lord, with abandon to put our lives in your hands in full trust 
giving us the freedom to take the bag of seed of your good news, of extravagant love, and just showering it, Lord. Our fear is that somehow we'll come to the end of the bag and nothing will have happened. But Lord, I'm convinced that there is no end to the bag if we put our trust in you. We can just keep distributing the seed of the kingdom if we will continue to trust you over and over again. This morning, Lord, mold us, make us, teach us, bring us to our knees in prayer. Take our discouragement and transform it into hope. Take our hurt and help us to find someone here and there a future. Take our pain and somehow out of that pain help us to see the resurrection that love provides. Thank you, Father. We praise your name. Amen.